بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد my dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته so we're going to be continuing with hadith number 10 tonight, bithnillahi ta'ala. And that is the hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. An Abi Hurairah radiallahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, inna allaha tayyibun la yaqbalu illa tayyib, wa inna allaha amara al-mu'mineen bima amara bihi al-mursaleen, faqal, ya ayuhal rusul, kulu minat tayyibati wa'amalu saliha, inni bima ta'amaluna alim. Wa qala, ya ayuhal ladhina amanu, kulu minat tayyibati ma razaqnakum, thumma dhakara ar-rajulu yutiru, السفر أشعث أغبر يمد يديه إلى السماء يا ربي يا ربي ومطعمه حرام ومشربه حرام وملبسه حرام وغدي بالحرام فأنا يستجاب لذلك رواه مسلم. On the authority of Abu Huraira رضي الله عنه who said that the Messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said verily Allah the Exalted is pure and accepts only that which is pure. Allah has commanded the believers to do that which He has commanded the messengers. The Exalted has said, O messengers, eat of the good things and do right. And the Exalted also said, O believers, eat of the good things that we have provided for you. Then he وسلم, mentioned a man who after a long journey is disheveled and dust colored. The man stretches his hands out towards the sky and says, O oh my Lord, O oh my Lord, while his food is unlawful, his drink is unlawful, and his clothing is unlawful, and his nourishment is unlawful. How is he to be answered in such a state? Recorded by Imam Muslim. So starting off with the narrator of the hadith, Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, as was mentioned in previous narrations, his real name was Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi. Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar al-Dawsi. And he was born in the year 18 before Hijrah, and he died in the year 59 after Hijrah. He died in the year 59 after Hijrah. From the virtues of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu was that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam actually made dua for his memory. Actually made dua for his memory. So that is why you find someone that was, you know, only Muslim for a short period of time. He accepted Islam in the year of Khaybar, which is around the seventh year. So only around three and a half years with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Yet he is the individual that narrated the most amount of hadith from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he narrates the story himself that he mentions that the Muhajirun, they were busy with their business, the Ansar, they were busy with their agriculture, and myself and the other poor companions, we accompanied the Messenger of Allah وسلم, day in and day out by living in the masjid itself. So he was from those companions that lived inside of the masjid. So this hadith, if you look at an overlook or a general view of what this hadith is referring to, it's talking about what is required in order for our deeds to be accepted. And then the second topic that it talks about is the importance of having a halal sustenance, meaning that that which you earn is something which is halal. And then the third thing it talks about is the effect of the first two in the dua of the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being answered. The, the effect of the dua or the effect of the first two in the effect of the dua of the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being answered. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he starts off this hadith by saying, Indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is tayyib and he only accepts that which is tayyib. So the term tayyib over here in this hadith, it actually means that which is tahir, meaning that which is pure. 
So when we talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being pure, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pure from many, many aspects. He is pure from the aspect of He has no negative attributes or traits. He's pure from the aspect of that He has no partners in anything that He does. He is pure from the aspect that he has no parents, nor does he have any offspring. So this is the purity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And here the Messenger of Allah sallallahu is drawing a parallel that since Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so pure, then that which we send to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of our deeds also needs to be pure. And this is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He mentions in the Qur'an uh, where He only accepts from the muttaqeen. Inna Allah yataqabbalu minal muttaqeen. That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only accepts from those people who have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now the concept of deeds being pure. The concept of deeds being pure. How does a deed become pure? The purity of the deed is from three aspects. The purity of the deed is from three aspects. Number one, in terms of the state, internal state of the individual that is doing the deed. So the internal state of the individual. So when you're about to do a deed, there's always this, you know, slight moment where an individual makes an intention in terms of why am I doing this deed? So the individual that's about to pray, he makes the intention, look, I'm about to pray, you know, four rakahs of Salat al-Dhuhr, uh, you know, following the Imam. He makes a, like a brief intention inside of his heart. Now, there's more to the state of the heart than just the intention. And that is, you know, reasons behind this. What is a person trying to achieve from this action? So I want you to take an example. The individual that approaches his salah. And the first individual, when he approaches his salah, his intention is, you know what? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made salah obligatory upon me. And I just want to fulfill this obligation and get it over with. So you'll notice that his salah will reflect the state of his heart at that time. It's just about fulfilling the obligation. I don't want to be punished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he'll do his salah very quickly, recite the, the shortest surahs as possible. And if he knows of the fiqh behind the salah and that only fatiha is, you know, wajib upon him, he'll only recite fatiha and only say subhana rabbi al-azim once and subhana rabbi al-a'la once and do the absolute minimum. Because all he wants to do is fulfill the religious obligation. He's not too concerned about the extra reward that is in the salah. Then you have scenario number two. An individual that approaches the salah while realizing the greatness of the salah. That he realizes, look, I'm in a conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is my time of seclusion with Allah. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hearing everything that I have to say. Then this individual, he's going to elongate his salah. He's going to praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as much as he can. He's going to make as much dua and supplication in his sajda as much as he can. And he's going to prolong his salah as much as he can because that is what his heart is longing for. So that is the first thing that affects a deed is the internal state. That what are you trying to achieve through the action that you're trying to do. Then the second element that affects the purity of the deed is the manner in which you are doing it in. And by manner of which you're doing it in, we refer to what, you know, how close are you in accordance to the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam taught us how to do certain things. Are you trying your utmost best to do it? Or are you like, you know what, I'm just going to do it my way regardless of what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam taught us. So the closer you are to the sunnah, then the purer the deed will be. Then the purer the deed will be. And the third element of purity actually comes after. So what are you like after that deed is done? What are you like after the deed is done? 
So the first one was the internal state. Second one was more of a physical state. How close are you to following the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah And the third is like a combined state of the two. That after a person has done the deed, you know, what is he, what is his state at that time? Is he longing for acceptance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Is he showing off his deeds to other people? You know, what is he doing with the deed after it is done? And that is the third element that will come into uh, purity of the deed. And that is in all three stages, one needs to make sure that the deed is pure. Now that is purity in terms of the deed itself. And that is not the only thing that will ex uh, affect the acceptance of the deed. In this hadith, we clearly learn that one's sustenance affects the purity of the deed. So if one's sustenance is not pure, and sustenance is of two types over here. The sustenance of one's wealth that one uh, earns, and then number two, the sustenance of the food that one eats. And that's something that we'll have a detailed discussion on ta'ala. So that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only accepting a pure deed actually means. That before the deed, his intention is pure, his heart is into the deed. Number two, that while he's doing the deed, he's doing it according to the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu And then number three, after the deed is over, it is, you know, he's longing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts the deed. He's not showing it off and um, he's hoping that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward him for it. Now, that is from the element of the slave, from the side of the slave. From the side of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does it mean when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts the deed? And I believe if we truly understand this concept, we'd focus a lot more on having or wanting our deeds to be accepted. Ibn Rajab rahimahullah, one of the great scholars of Islam, he comments uh, on this element of the hadith and he says that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts a deed, then four things take place. Then four things take place. Number one, he earns the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that our master, our creator, our sustainer, he actually becomes pleased with us. And that is like one of the happiest moments for a slave himself. Knowing that the one that created him, he is now pleased with him and happy with him. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us for a purpose, we're on that path of fulfilling that purpose. So the first is the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this deed to the angels. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this deed to the angels. So around the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are constantly angels. There are those angels that are holding the throne, those angels that are worshipping Allah, those angels that are praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and there are just those angels that are there to listen to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to say. So when the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does a good deed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises that slave in front of these angels. So you, you can imagine the highest of angels that are around Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are hearing your name. And they're, men, they're being mentioned to your praises by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards the deed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards the deed. And this is something that you'll see on the day of judgment. That when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prepares the scales, there will be a scale of good deeds and bad deeds. And the one whose good deeds are heavier than his bad deeds, then he shall be saved from the fire ta'ala. And then the second element to good deeds is that the more good deeds you have, then the higher your rank in paradise as well. The higher your rank in paradise as well. So that is the third element where the slave will actually see the fruits of what he's done. And then number four, the fourth element of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepting a deed is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises the iman of the slave. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises the iman of the slave. So if you notice that after you do a good deed, you'll naturally feel 
you know, the equivalent of a Muslim high. And what we mean by that is that you'll feel good, that you know, I did something good, I've achieved something in my life. And you'll notice that even in like the smallest of deeds, that you see someone who's struggling with their bags and you help them hold their bags. You'll feel good after doing something like that. That is the appreciation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for you in doing that deed. Encouragement that you know, do more good deeds like this. You hold the door for someone and you see that someone walks in through your help, you feel good after it. Now the more struggle you have in doing that good deed, the greater that high or that feeling that you get after you've performed that good deed. And this is from the appreciation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in increasing your iman after that deed. An important element to understand over here is that deeds need to be done regardless of if they're accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not. Deeds need to be done regardless of if they're accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not. What exactly does that mean? The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not accept the prayers of the individual that drinks for 40 days. So an individual who's drunk or he's taking any form of intoxicant, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not accept his salah for 40 days. So does this mean that the person can stop praying for 40 days? No, that's not the case at all. But rather he has to keep praying and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not reward him for his salah in the slightest. So the acceptance of the deed does not uplift the obligation of the deed and the two should not be confused. So for example, you know, someone may think that, you know what, if I was to do a deed in such a state, my salah is not going to be accepted, so therefore I don't have to pray. No, it doesn't work like that at all. The obligation of the deed is always going to be there, and that is something completely separate from the acceptance of the deed. That is something completely separate from the acceptance of the deed. And we mentioned previously the verse in Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse number 27, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا يَتَقَبَّلَ اللَّهُ مِنَ الْمُتَّقِينَ that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only accepts from those people that are conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you'll notice that the more conscious an individual is of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only will they do more good deeds, but the purity of their deeds will be at a higher level as well. Because that is what the conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does. Then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam goes on to say, Allah has commanded the believers to do that which He commanded the messengers. And this is a very heavy statement. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messenger sallallahu alayhi wa is saying that he's commanded the believers, all of us, just like he commanded the messengers. And here the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa is emphasizing this very concept. That look, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the messengers of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa with the exact same thing. So you need to take this seriously. Now what exactly did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala command the messengers with? And then the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he recites the following verse. He says, Ya ayyuhar rusul, kulu min al-tayyibati wa'amalu salihah. O messengers, eat of the good things and do righteous deeds. And do righteous deeds. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he addresses all of the messengers to eat from the tayyibat. And this is going to go into a very heavy discussion in what is actually tayyib in our religion. What exactly is actually considered tayyib in our religion? So when we talk about that which is tayyib in our religion, it is meaning that which is pure in its utmost sense. So meaning that which was used to harvest these crops comes from something pure. That which is used to fertilize these crops comes from something pure. The individual that's harvesting these crops is someone who is pure. 
This is a level of purity that is required when you talk about that which is tayyib. And we'll cover uh, you know, a couple of elements in terms of this bidnillahi So the first principle we get into is that when it comes to matters of food, the natural state of food is that it is permissible until proven to be impermissible. So you find any form of vegetable, it's completely permissible for you to eat until it's proven to be haram for you. Likewise, when it comes to any form of meat, as a Muslim, you're allowed eating any type of meat you want up until it's proven to you that you know what, as a Muslim, you're not allowed eating this form of meat. So vegetables, generally speaking, is a clear-cut issue. I mean, as, as far as I know, there is no vegetable that is actually haram for us. There's no vegetable that is actually haram for us. In terms of the meat, this is where we always get into the controversial issues. You know, can I eat at McDonald's? Can I eat at you know, Burger King? Can I eat at all of these places? And we're going to break it down into some very simple principles, bismillah ta'ala. Number one is let us talk about the animal even before it's slaughtered. Let us talk about the animal even before it's slaughtered. As Muslims, we're required to show mercy towards the animals. So for example, if we know that the, the animal is tortured before it is slaughtered, if we know that the, you know, the animal is not taken care of before it's slaughtered, then as Muslims, we have an obligation to take a moral stance towards these things. So if we know a particular farmer is doing this, it is our responsibility to abstain from those types of treatments. And this includes, you know, the stunning of the animals till they're dead. This includes that, you know, uh, animals being locked together in, you know, small confined spaces where they have no room to move around. This includes, you know, that uh, animals just live in, in filthy, filthy, you know, situations where they're not cleaned and they're not groomed at all. So that is the first thing that as Muslims, we have that moral obligation. Number two, as Muslims, we're actually required to look into what the animals are actually fed. So this is what they call in the Arabic language, Mas'alatul Jalala, Mas'alatul Jalala. And what Jalala actually is, is that animal which is fed impurities. That animal which is fed impurities. So for example, if you know a cow, you know, is fed uh, corn with its own feces mixed into it. So it's tricked into eating its own feces, just like fatten it up. As a Muslim, you're not allowed eating that animal. Even if you slaughter it properly, that animal is still harab for us. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, he tells us that that animal needs to be fed pure food for 40 days and only after that can the animal be slaughtered. So we're, made, we're required to make sure that the animal is fed good food. Now in our times, we have you know, a whole bunch of ethical issues that are just as severe as Masalatul Jalala. And that is when you look at beef within of itself, what exactly are cows being fed and what should they actually be fed? So cows in reality by the vast majority of farmers, and this is like statistics based upon the United States. This is based upon statistics in the United States. I'm not too sure about what it's like in Canada uh, on these massive scales. But in the United States, these mass producers of beef, who knows what they're fed? Does anyone know what they feed the cows? What do they feed the cows? Two, uh, two substances that the cow naturally would not eat. Go ahead. Corn and? Meat? No. Wheat? No. A substance that is very, very cheap and most of us, we don't like eating. Soy. They're fed corn and soy. That is what the vast majority of cows in the United States, in these big farms that you know, mass produce beef, that's what they're fed. 
Now this has an adverse effect, not only on the cow itself, but in the milk that it produces and the quality of, of beef that, that uh, comes out of this cow as well. And that is why you'll find that in, you know, in our times, there's so many sicknesses affiliated with beef that weren't found before, that weren't found before. And that is why I would suggest that, you know, it's going to cost more, but it's not just about buying halal meat anymore. It's about buying organically grown halal meat, where you know that the cows are fed, you know, grass and they're fed good substances and they're taken care of. And then on top of that is halal. And on top of that is halal. And alhamdulillah, you know, living in, in Calgary, one of the advantages of living in Alberta is that we're surrounded by like, you know, cow town. You know, there's cows everywhere around us. And you find, you know, people that live with these ethical values that are really into organic meat and, you know, if you want to, to sacrifice the animal yourself or have a sacrifice in a, in a special way, they will accommodate to that. You know, my wife and I, we looked into this uh, several months ago and Alhamdulillah in the south of Calgary, about an hour south of Calgary, you do find, you know, organic uh, beef that is halal, that is, you know, cut according to uh, the rules of the biha. So that's before the cow uh, or before the animal is actually sacrificed. Now when the animal is meant to be sacrificed, let us get into some issues. The first issue we talk about is the tasmiyah, the saying of Bismillah Allahu Akbar before the animal is sacrificed. So in terms of the tasmiyah, the majority of schools have said that this tasmiyah is compulsory. So the madhab of Imam Malik, the madhab of Imam Ahmad, the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa, they said that the tasmiyah is something which is compulsory. The madhab of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah, it went in another direction and it said no, that it is not compulsory. It is not compulsory. And over here, you know, several things come into, into play that you will have three scenarios pretty much. Scenario number one is when you have other than the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned while the animal is being sacrificed. So an animal is being sacrificed in the name of, you know, another god, another deity, then this is something that would render the meat impermissible according to all of the schools of thoughts, regardless of who's actually cutting the meat. Then number two, what if no mention is made whatsoever? What if no mention is made whatsoever? And that's what you'll see in our times, that when animals are slaughtered, there's usually no mentioning of uh, anything upon of the animals. And in this situation, the madhab of Imam al-Shafi obviously didn't have an issue with this. They said, this is perfectly fine, this meat is halal, and it's not an issue. Then with the rest of the madhahib, the most of these scholars, they said this is something that is extremely disliked. Even according to the madhab of uh, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, this was not uh, allowed whatsoever. Whereas Imam Ahmad and Imam Malik, they said it is allowed, but it is something that is disliked. It is allowed, but it is something that is disliked. And then the ideal case scenario is that the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioned and this avoids all ikhtilaf. This avoids all ikhtilaf altogether. So this is the issue of the tasmiyah. The issue of the individual doing the sacrifice. So the meat that is eaten, does it have to be someone that is Muslim that is cutting the meat? And the answer to that is no. The answer to that is no. That it is preferred that if a Muslim does cut the meat, but if an individual is from the Jewish faith or from the Christian faith. Now how do you identify something like that? What it eventually comes down to is two major, two general principles. Number one, you have the ability to identify it yourself. So you know the individual who was the butcher and did the slaughtering, and you know that he identifies with the Christian faith or the Jewish faith. 
regardless of their level of practice, then this is something that you are allowed to eat and something that you will accept. Now, in our state and case where you do not know the farmers themselves, we just buy it from the grocery stores. What do you do in that situation? And the scholars over here derived several principles to look at how do you judge the ruling of the people. And they said that you can look at several things. Number one, how do the majority of people in that country identify themselves? So if there's you know, statistics of a, of a census, how do the majority of people identify themselves? If the majority of people identify themselves with Christianity, Judaism, or with Islam, then that's something that's perfectly fine and you can eat from their meat. Number two, they said, what if you don't have a census, you don't have these statistics? Then they said, in that situation, you look at the holidays that they celebrate. If they celebrate pagan holidays, then this is something that you, know, you will not accept because that would identify them as pagan. However, if they're celebrating Christian and Jewish holidays, then you would identify them with those faiths and you're allowed to eat their meat as well. So that is how you'd identify in a general state. So in our particular case in point, in a place like Calgary, first of all, Canada does identify itself as a secular liberal democracy. That's you know, what it calls itself. But on a practical level, when you look at the censuses, the vast majority of Canadians do identify themselves with Christianity. And Canada does celebrate Christian holidays, right? So that is what it identifies itself with. So that's just you know, a practical tidbit. Then we get to number three, the actual cutting uh, of the animal itself. And when you do the biha, when you sacrifice the animal, then three things need to be cut. The uh, archery that's in the, in the neck, and the two windpipes, and the two windpipes. If all three of these are slit and they are cut, then this is the ideal case scenario. Then this is the ideal case scenario. And then the scholars differed, what if only one of them cut, is cut, or what if only they are partially cut? What do you do in that situation? If they are partially cut, then you need to try to make sure that you try to fully cut them if you're doing it yourself. But in a situation that you can't identify, you know, what is the ruling at that point? What is the ruling at that point? In that situation, the scholars mentioned that as long as you can prove that the animal died due to the slaughtering and not due to external reasons, then this is something that is allowed. Then this is something that is allowed. Now the last point we'll mention pertaining to this is how about if an animal is stunned? How about if an animal is stunned or is clobbered over the head or if the animal is shot? So in terms of the animal being shot in the head, Islamically this is something that is not allowed. And this is something that will kill the animal and we're not allowed to eat that animal even if it is sacrificed. What if the animal is shot in the body to like slow it down? So for example, you have a massive cow that's running away, you know, they decide to shoot it at that time. In this situation, it would still be allowed to eat that animal. But if this is a regular practice, then Muslims need to take a stance that animals cannot be treated in this manner. How, in terms of uh, electrocuting the animal. Electrocuting the animal to the state that it is still alive, but uh, it is rendered, you know, uh, unable uh, to move. This is something that is allowed. It is not the ideal case scenario because there is a huge danger that the animal can actually die. And in the cases that animals do actually die, then obviously this would render the meat from that animal to be impure and something that is not allowed. Now with that said, you'll notice in the province of Alberta in particular, 
there are actually very, very strict laws in terms of electrocuting animals. So alhamdulillah, if you buy meat that is you know, from the province of Alberta, it's generally safe to do so in terms of the electrical practices, that they're very ethical in terms of their practices. Whereas outside of Alberta, you'll need to be more careful, particularly in the United States where they're very, very liberal with the shooting of the animal and with the electrocuting of the animal, then it, you know, the scholars actually recommend that you stay away from eating meat in the United States altogether, unless you're like, clearly sure who you're buying the meat from. And then in terms of clobbering of the head, it takes the same ruling. You know, if it renders him, uh, the animal, unable to move, that's perfectly fine. But if it kills it, then this is something that is impermissible to eat. Now, I know this is a, a very heavy discussion, and I know a lot of you are going to have questions after this. But I wanted to mention as many of the points as I possibly could in terms of what actually makes the food halal. What actually makes the food halal. So that is in terms of the meat. Now also in terms of the fruits and vegetables that we eat, there are ethical you know, elements that come into play. So in terms of you know, what are the types of pesticides and herbicides that are being used to protect the plants and to protect the fruits and vegetables. You know, what are the practices that are, are used by the farmers to regrow them? You know, a lot of the times, these are genetically modified seeds that produce abnormal fruit. And you'll find in our day and age, that you find fruit which is abnormal. You know, the shelf life of the fruit is like triple or quadruple to what it's actually meant to be. You'll find that even the taste of the fruit is completely different. You'll find the sizes of the fruits, you know, they're much, much larger. You know, all this is happening due to genetically modified, um, you know, seeds that are, that are being used and, and methods that are being used. So again, if you can go organic, that is the best thing to do. That is the best thing to do. So this is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about something being tayyib, then these are things that are meant to be taken into consideration. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala concludes the verse in addressing the messengers, وَعْمَلُوا الصَّالِحَةِ The do righteous deeds. So you'll notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is drawing a parallel over here between eating that which is tayyib and doing righteous deeds. Meaning when an individual focuses on eating pure food, then insha'Allah this will lead to the deeds being righteous and being acceptable by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whereas if an individual doesn't focus on eating that which is pure, then this could lead to the deeds being rejected. And that is why you'll actually find some of the predecessors of the past, they said the first thing that will lead a person to commit sin and stay away from good deeds is the eating of impure foods, is the eating of impure foods. So let the slave of Allah be very very careful of what he eats. And then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he now mentions the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the believers. He says, Ya amanu, kulu ma razaknakum. That eat, O you who believe, eat from those things which are pure, that which we have provided for you. So when Allah the messengers, he said, do righteous deeds. When he addresses the believers, he says, that which we have provided for you. So you'll notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He addresses the messengers with a different state. There's a higher expectation that you know, do righteous deeds now that you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided for you. Whereas when He's addressing the believers, it's more about building their faith. That here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the people that eat from that which is pure, from that which we have provided for you. Meaning that the food that it is in front of you is only there because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed it to be there. He is the one that sent down the rain. He is the one that tells the sun to rise every morning. He is the one that tells the crops to grow. He is the one that granted life to the farmer. He is the one that granted life to the animals that you know, fertilize the, 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 the harvest. So all of these things you know, come into play through the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And that is why you'll notice that, you know, we live in troubling times that where you, when you ask a kid, you know, where does milk come from? He says it comes from the fridge. He doesn't see the whole process of milk coming from the cow and the whole process of the cow eating and, you know, someone milking the cow and someone taking care of the cow and all this stuff. So the whole concept of, you know, taking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala away from the equation is what happens when you have like globalized markets, you know, dealing with your produce. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَا رَزَقْنَاكُمْ Meaning that which we have provided for you. So meaning that we should never be oblivious of that uh, fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that provides for us. Now the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam goes on to portray a story of an individual that I believe a lot of us can, you know, uh, resonate with, we can relate to. That the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam he mentions a man. Now, what is this man doing? He's raising his hands to the sky, begging and pleading from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is going to lead us into a discussion of, you know, how does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answer dua? Does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answer all dua? And so on and so forth. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He draws a very clear principle for us in Surah Al-Baqarah in verse 186. That if my slaves ask you about me, then tell them that I am near. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to know that He is near. Well, how does this affect us? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, goes on to say, that he says, I am near and I answer the supplication of each and every person that supplicates to me. That is what the nearest, nearness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually means. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there to answer all of our calls. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers calls in three ways. So number one, either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the slave what he wants when he wants it. Number two, is that he delays answering the call of the slave till a time that it is better for him. He delays answering the call for the slave till it is a time better for him. Or number three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that what the slave is asking for is not good for him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't give him what he asks for, but he protects him from an equal amount of evil. He protects him from an equivalent amount of evil in his life. Now that is the general principle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answering du'as. But the reality of the matter is that here in this hadith, the Messenger of Allah is telling us that there are actually impediments to du'as being answered. There are actually impediments to du'as being answered. And one of the predecessors of the past, he said, how do you expect for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to answer your supplication when you're blocking off the road to His answering with your sins? When you're blocking off the road that leads to His answering with your sins. So the sins that we commit have a huge effect on this. Now the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa goes on to give his first description of this man. And that first description of this man is that he is on a long journey. He's come from a long journey. And you can see this in him. So now what is the benefit of mentioning that he comes from a long journey? Two benefits from this. Number one, the Messenger of Allah tells us that three people's du'as are answered. The person who is traveling, the person who is being oppressed, and the du'a of the father or the parent for the child. These are three people's whose du'as are answered. Now why particularly the person who is traveling? Particularly the person who is traveling he is away from his family, he is away from his loved ones, he is away from his familiar places. And due to all of this, 
his reliance upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases. His dependence upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his longing for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He becomes more cognitive of how weak he is and how strong Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers the dua of someone who is traveling. Because he's cognitive of all of these things. So the first, thing, first description he gives is that he comes from a long journey. Second description is that he's disheveled and dust colored. Meaning that he's traveling through the desert, his hair is all over the place, he's covered in, in, in like sand, and basically he's broken down. And this is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala likes to see in his slaves. That when the slave approaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he approaches Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a state of being completely broken down. And he completely recognizes his weakness and the strength of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is the second attribute that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gives this man. Attribute number three is that he stretches his hand out to the sky. And this is the general case scenario that when we make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our hands should be raised to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the general case when making dua personally. Making dua personally, you raise your hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When dua is made in congregation, then the general rule is that the hands are not raised except in one situation. And that is when dua is made for rain. That is the only time we saw that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, when he was in congregation making dua, that he would raise his hands when he was doing the dua of istisqa, the dua of asking for rain. Third attribute. Attribute number four. He starts off by saying, Wa alaikum assalam wa He starts off by saying, Ya Rabbi, Ya Rabbi. He says, Oh my Lord, Oh my Lord. So you'll notice that this is a common thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows us throughout the Quran that when righteous people make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they'll always start off by saying Rabbi or Rabbana that oh my Lord or oh our Lord recognizing the role of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in our lives that Allah is our master, our creator, our sustainer, our king and we are the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so he calls out, calling out by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, Oh my Lord, Oh my Lord. And this is from the etiquettes of dua that you recognize and you call Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by this. Now, those are all positive attributes that would indicate that this man's dua is meant to be answered. He's done pretty much everything correct. He's traveling, he's broken down, he's raised his hands, he's calling out, Oh my Lord, Oh my Lord. Now after this, you know, perfect picture of dua that the Messenger of Allah has painted for us, he now shows us everything wrong that this man has done. He says, while his food was unlawful, his drink was unlawful, his clothing was unlawful, and his nourishment was unlawful. Meaning that you can do everything right in making dua, but if all of these attributes are still there, then that needs to be fixed. So if an individual is doing this consciously, that he consciously knows that his food is haram, he knows that his income is haram, he knows that that which is he is drinking is haram, then how and why would he expect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to answer his dua? That when, Allah, when you want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to answer your dua, your call, you need to make sure are you answering the call of Allah first. We need to answer the call of Allah first before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will answer our call. And this is something, you know, particularly when it comes to dua, that you need to put things into perspective. Ibn Rajab rahimahullah, he mentioned something very, very beautiful. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to answer our dua each and every single time, who would be the master and who would be the slave? Who would be the one in control? It would change, wouldn't it? 
Because it is always the servant that is answering the call of, the, of his master. And if Allah is always answering our call, then who would be the master and who would be the slave? And it's something important to recognize that at the end of the day, we are the slaves of Allah. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses not to answer our dua in a particular way, then this is something that we should accept and recognize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has our best interests in mind. Has our best interests in mind. Now, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he concludes by saying, فَأَنَّا يُسْتَجَابَ لَهُ or فَأَنَّا يُسْتَجَابَ لِذَلِكَ That how will this man actually be answered? And this conclusion is actually a glad tidings. That the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam didn't outright say that this person will not have his dua answered. He didn't outright say that. He said, then how would this person's dua be answered? And here the Messenger of Allah is telling us that even if that is the case where his food is haram, his drink is haram, his clothing is haram, his income is haram, out of the generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will still answer the dua. Because the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he tells us that when the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises his hands to Allah, Allah is shy to turn away those hands empty-handed. Allah is shy to turn away those hands empty-handed. And that is why you find, and I know I've mentioned this example many, many times, but in the story of Adam and Iblis, both of them made dua to Allah. Adam made dua for forgiveness, Iblis makes dua for prolonged life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered both of their duas. For Adam salam, we can understand the fact it was because he's a prophet, he's a righteous man, and he's recognized the mistake that he's made. But why does Allah answer the dua of Iblis? What good has Iblis possibly done that he deserves a response from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And over here, it's not about Iblis, but it's about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to show his generosity, wants to show his nobility. That anyone that calls out to Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will always answer their supplication. Even if it is someone like Iblis. Even if it is someone like Iblis. Now, the points that I want to conclude with. Dealing with interest in our times. When it comes to financial aspects, this is the number one issue that will render your wealth impure. Like, you know, everything else, with the exception of stealing, is like pardonable and forgivable and, you know, there's ways and the sharia around it. But when it comes to these two matters, the issue of stealing, taking people's wealth wrongfully, and the issue of dealing with the riba, these are, you know, the akbar of the kabair. So now, there's a general principle in the Sharia. And this is what we'll start with. That when wealth changes hands, it actually purifies the wealth. When wealth changes hand, it actually purifies the wealth. So what does this actually mean? So for example, we have father and son. This is the father, this is the son. This father, what does he do by profession? He is the owner of a purely riba-based bank, right? You know, this is what he does for a living. He owns a bank that lends out money based upon riba. This is the son, you know, newly found his faith. He wanted to turn his back to Allah and he's perplexed. You no, know, all of the money we have in our house is through our dad who deals with interest. Is our food halal? Is our, you know, the, the things that I buy with his money halal? And the answer to that is yes. The reason behind that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not hold us accountable for the mistakes of others. And when wealth changes hands, with the exception of wealth that is stolen or taken unjustly, that wealth becomes purified. 
So that's one important thing to keep in mind. So if someone else gives you money that might have been from interest or from other means, as long as it's not stolen wealth, then that wealth does become purified when it changes hands. Number two, dealing with your own personal finances. It is very, very important that we understand what riba is. Riba is an increase in payment for a prolongment in time. That is a general picture of riba in our times. Meaning that you're granted more time for an increased amount of payment. And this will you know, be seen in multiple cases. So this can be seen in late library fees. You delay paying your library, you, know, you delay returning your book, they charge you a fee for that. They'll charge you like a dollar for every day or something like that. That dollar for, extra, for every day is now considered interest because it's a prolonged period of time in exchange for wealth. Likewise, delaying and paying any of your bills, they give you more time if you pay more money. Paying off your credit card, more time, more money. These are all different uh, you know, scenarios of interest in our times. And these are things that need to be avoided. Now, a lot of the times, you know, Muslims are very, very shy when it comes, comes to like customer negotiation. They're like, you know what? XYZ company told me I have to pay this. If I don't pay it, I'm going to be in trouble. That is the general case scenario. Yes, if you don't pay your bills, you will be in trouble. However, if you don't even try to negotiate, how do you know what's going to happen? And this is my own personal experience. That I, you know, alhamdulillah, try my utmost best, try to avoid it as much as I can. But in certain case scenarios, you know, there was nothing that I could do. Like, so this happened last month actually. Last month, uh, I was traveling a lot. And on top of that, my NMAX bill didn't show up. I didn't receive my NMAX bill. So even my wife, she didn't know how to pay the bill because it never came. So this month, I get my NMAX bill. Not only is it like doubled, which is like, you know, a shocking nightmare. But on top of that, it's like you've been charged, you know, $10 in, in late fees and, and in interest. So... You know, I was like, you know what, let me call them up, explain the situation. I called them up and, you know, got this really, really friendly lady. I told her, look, I was traveling and I never received my bill. And you can look in my history, I always pay my bills on time. Can you please take away this late fee? And she says, you know what, it's done. No argumentation, no defense of my case, nothing, no begging, no pleading, none of that. She just took it off. And alhamdulillah, you know, that's been the case where like the four or five times that this has happened. So this is a very valuable lesson. That until you ask, you won't know for sure. So never just give in to the concept that you know what, it's only a little bit of a, an amount, it's not that big of a deal. Or never think that you know what, I'm too shy to ask. Believe me, on the Day of Judgment, these sort of things will have a huge impact. So, you know, negotiate your way out of the interest. Negotiate your way out of the interest. And you'll find that part of customer satisfaction is that most major companies will comply with it. They want to keep your business. Even if it means, you know, you're not paying your interest, then they're, they're more than happy to, to pardon that interest and waive the interest. Number two, in terms of dealing with bank accounts. So the general case scenario is that regardless of the type of bank account you open, they will give you interest. Interest is higher in savings account and minimalized in checkings account. And in our times, you know, the, the banks are even becoming more stingy. A lot of the checkings account won't even have interest. They're like, before it used to be minimal, now it's completely taken off. A lot of people think that, you know what, it's only a couple of cents every month. It doesn't make that big of a difference. My dear brothers and sisters, there's nothing in the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that an individual will, will wage war against Allah other than dealing with interest. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that whoever deals with interest has waged war against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu Meaning you're engaging in a battle that you can possibly, not possibly win, it's not possible. So even if you think it's cents on the dollar, just make that little extra effort and you know what, get it eliminated and save yourself from the possible punishment that could come or from the possible hardship that could come. Move on to a scenario. What if an individual tonight, he realizes that you know what, it is a big deal, I want to cut off this interest, what do I do now? In such a situation, an individual calculates the previous interest that he has received to the best of his ability. If you can't calculate every single month, then just approximate and give that amount away in charity. Give that amount away in charity. You won't be rewarded for that charity, but least the burden of responsibility that is upon you then that will be uplifted from you. That will be uplifted from you. Some of the scholars mention that you're not allowed giving that money to a mosque or for a person to be fed from it. And this is from their ijtihad. They said that that money is impure, so why would you give it to someone or to a masjid to use that impure money? When in reality, that is not the case. As we mentioned the principle, that as long as the money is not taken unjustly, then the wealth is purified in the changing of hands and that person is not responsible for it. Let me conclude with one last thing, and that is um, taking of wealth unjustly. Inshallah, I hope this is not the case where you know, uh, someone has taken someone's wealth unjustly. But what do you do in the situation that so you have taken someone's wealth unjustly? You know, you're a young, foolish teenager, you, you stole someone's money, you stole someone's property. What do you do in that situation? The scholars divided into three opinions. Opinion number one was the opinion of Imam al-Shafi, rahimahullah. He said that you hold on to that wealth until you find the person and then you have to return it back to them. And even if you, you know, live your whole entire life and you don't find the person, then you leave that wealth behind in the name of that person, hoping that one day someone, either him or someone from his, their family, will take it. That's the opinion of Imam al-Shafi. The opinion of the majority. They said that if you're unable to, if you can find the person, give it to the person. If you're unable to find the person after one year, then give that thing or that amount or the equivalent of that amount in charity on that person's behalf. On that person's behalf and that is sufficed. And opinion number three, and this was an opinion that was considered um, invalid or in opposition to the majority, and that is that that wealth should actually be destroyed. That wealth should actually be destroyed if you cannot find the person. So you try to find the person, you give it back to them. If you can't find that person, then that wealth should be destroyed. And this was the opinion of Al-Fudayl ibn Iyad. This was the opinion of Al-Fudayl ibn Iyad. And then one last point, and this is the last point, Bibn um, Ayy The issue of, of earning sustenance. You know, alhamdulillah, part of living in a, a semi-socialist society where the government actually cares for people is that the government will give free handouts. So someone that's unemployed, that can't find a job, you know what, the government will help them. And this is something that's good, that you know, if you have people who have families and need to take care of themselves, they have no money coming in, then the government should take care of these people. And that's good from the government side. Now what ends up happening is the state of the individual and that's taking this money. The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and I want to share this hadith with you. He says, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ لِأَنْ يَأْخُذَ أَحَدُكُمْ حَبْلَةً فَلْيَحْتَطِبَ عَلَى ظَهْرِهِ خَيْرٌ لَهُ مِنْ أَنْ يَأْتِيَ رَجُلًا فَيَسْأَلُهُ أَعْطَاهُ أَوْ مَنَعَهُ That by the one in whose hand is my soul, 
it is better for one of you to take a rope and gather wood and carry it on his back and sell it rather than to ask a person for something and that person may or may not give it. Meaning that when you ask people for money, then this is a very humiliating situation. And the Muslim should not put himself in that situation where he's asking for money. So if you're in a state of desperation, okay, it's understandable that you ask for it. But if you're not getting out of your house, you're not trying to work, you're not trying your utmost best to work, then this is something that is very, very humiliating. And the Messenger of Allah he tells us that the exact opposite. That the best source of income that a person can have is the wealth that is earned through the hard work of his two hands, through the hard work of his two hands. So it's very important that you know our brothers that are unemployed, that may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for you, don't get comfortable on handouts, but rather try your utmost best, even if it's doing something very, very small, you know, what you would consider trivial, maybe like, you know, um, helping people move, you know, in the summertime, July 1st is coming up, people are going to be wanting to move, helping people move, money can be made during that time. If it's painting houses, people are moving out, they need to get their houses and apartments painted. Summertime, grass needs to be cut. You know, all of these things, these are possible sources of income and it is better than being dependent on handouts. So it is better to do these small jobs rather than be in a situation where a person asks for handouts. So to summarize everything that we've taken, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only accepts those deeds that are pure because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pure Himself. In terms of deeds being pure, the income has to be pure, the food that we eat has to be pure, and our internal states need to be pure. And that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept our deeds. Part of impurity is that it leads to possibly our du'as not being accepted. So you can be doing everything right, but due to the impurity of your food, your drink, your clothing, your sources of income, if there's impurity, then this could lead to du'as being rejected. And that in brief is a summary of this beautiful, beautiful hadith. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us the tawfiq to implement everything that we've learned. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect our wealth, our sustenance, the food that we eat, the, food, the drink that we drink, the clothes that we wear, from any forms of impurity and any forms of things that are not pure and halal. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us of those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts their deeds. Ameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabiyyana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We'll open up the floor for question and answer. Bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. Adnan, go ahead. I recently heard something about the uh, stalking of uh, animals. Yeah. Uh, so you said you stalked the, the shahar, like the, the main fault where someone said you've got to stab the stomach as well where the uh, animal is seeing movement so the stalk can come out. Is that, is that, is that a valid um, argument? Or? So uh, in terms of killing an animal in Islam, there's two ways to do it. One is the dhabiha and the other one is the nahar. And I think that's what the person might have been talking about. So when you have like really big animals, you can't like hold it down and like cut its throat at that time. So things like bulls, things like camels, you just do nahar where you like just puncture, you know, the, the artery and, and, and the windpipe. That's maybe what he was referring to. But in terms of punching the stomach and getting the impurities out, I've never heard that before. I think that's not part of the slaughtering process, that's part of the cleaning process. And the cleaning process is completely different from the slaughtering process. So cleaning the animal would not affect the, you know, halalness of the animal per se. Okay, Wallahu ta'ala ala. Ibrahim? Uh, 
and so on, stuff like that. Yeah, this is, a, you know, this is what we call uh, an issue which is nazil, meaning it's a modern day issue that scholars of the past really haven't spoken about. Now, I think for scholars, when they look at this issue, they can't just look at the short-term effects of this. They need to look at the long-term effects of this. And I'll tell you one of the, the messed up things about this. You know, one of the side effects of uh, soy is that it increases levels of estrogen. So, you know, that's why it's recommended that drinking soy milk, even for men, you drink it in limited quantities. So now, now that, you know, this is being fed to the cows, there's higher levels of estrogen and hormones inside of this, you know, it's increasing the level of estrogen in society in general. Now, one of the things that estrogen does, and this is not, you know, an attack at women, this is purely from a, uh, you know, a, a science perspective, that the more estrogen a person is exposed to, the more hormonal and more temperamental they become. Right? You can't control your emotions at that time. That's generally what happens. So I would say that as a Muslim, if you know that you know, this milk is coming from a cow that is induced with hormones or is being fed things like soy and corn, it's better to avoid drinking that. We're not going to say it's haram, but we're going to say that the long-term effects of this can be very, very adverse. And that's what we want to try to avoid so we won't use the term haram, we'll just use, you know, spend a little bit of extra money and drink that organic milk instead with your cereal business. Wallahu ta'ala. Go ahead. Yeah, hunting, in regards to hunting. Yeah. Alberta, we're blessed with a lot of wildlife. Fantastic. Uh, shooting, you know, killing animals but eating them. Yeah. What is the ruling on this? Is it haram then or is it... Okay, fantastic. So during the time of the Prophet they obviously didn't have guns. They had bows and arrows and spears and things like that. So they said that the general ruling is two things. Number one is that if you're shooting to kill and the animal dies, uh, then you say Bismillah when you throw the, you're the gun or the arrow or the spear and that's sufficient regardless of where you hit it and how it dies. Number two, they said if you're not shooting to kill, then this is something that is not allowed in Islam. So to, you know, for example, a gazelle or a deer is very, very fast. Uh, you can't aim just to injure it. You have to aim to kill. In the situation where your intention is to kill, but it gets injured as opposed to dying, then you have to hurry to go and sacrifice the animal to take it away from its pain in that situation. And that's something that's completely permissible. The only time hunting would become impermissible is in the case where you're using a hunting dog or you're in, an, in, uh, or in a situation where you have scavengers around. So if the hunting dog or the scavengers start eating from the animal that you hunted, then that meat would become impermissible for you. But as long as it wasn't uh, attacked by scavengers and your hunting dog didn't eat from it, then that's something which is permissible. And this teaches us that um, even using a hunting dog is permissible for retrieval, but not for the sake of you know, um, eating from the animal or anything like that. Wallahu ta'ala. Go ahead. You've given the ruling right now. You just told us it's not halal. <laughs> so like I said, this is an issue of debate and I gave the general principles and it's up to the people to you know, use those principles and decipher do I want to eat from McDonald's or not. The principle that I'll give you is that, look, when it comes to Islamic matters, as Muslims, we should always have higher standards. It shouldn't be, is it halal or is it haram? We want to ask, is it good for me or is it not good for me? Right, that's the question we want to ask. And I'll tell you from experience 
that even if you do say McDonald's is halal, those people that say McDonald's is halal, you will feel like trash after you eat it. You feel disgusting. It's oversalted, you will feel bloated, it depletes your energy, you'll spend you know, a decent amount of time in the bathroom after you've eaten it, all because it's a clear sign from Allah that you shouldn't be eating it. Right? These are all signs from Allah. So that's the best case scenario, that avoid eating at fast food restaurants in general. That is a general piece of advice that I will give. Right? Regardless of, you want to call it halal or not, you know, dhabiha or not, that's not the issue over here. I'm saying, as Muslims, let's have higher standards for ourselves. That let's eat food which is healthy. Let's eat food that is good for us. And then, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala, you know, this hadith shows us the, the benefits of it. So the general case scenario is, I'm not going to use the term haram, nor am I going to use the term halal. But what I will say, it is definitely better for you to stay away from it. Definitely better for you to stay away from it. Wallahu ta'ala. Any last questions? Go ahead. Is there an onus then for us to know where our grocery shops get their fruits and vegetables from? Okay, so in terms of a compulsory requirement, then no. It is not wajib upon you to find out you know, where are they getting their food from? What are the ethical practices that these farmers are using? Is it a good thing to do? Yes, it is. With businesses, with businesses. So if you're invited to someone's house, it's actually un-Islamic to ask, you know, where did you get your food from? You're not allowed doing that with individuals. But with businesses, since you're a customer, it is your right to, you know, investigate and pursue, you know, where they're getting it from. Wallahu ta'ala. So if you're invited to someone's house and you know that the <laughs> can I can I have water please? So how do you know it's not halal? That's my question. I mean you know they don't buy meat from any halal grocery store. How do you know that? Maybe just for you because they know that you're coming over, they went out and did it. And this is part of having husnul done for our brothers and sisters. That when we when they invite us to their houses, it's very bad to have bad suspicion of them and we should accept what they offer us. And at that time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not hold us accountable for it. Unless, you know, it's the ex odd exception, someone is completely ignorant and he's like, you know, I've made some pork tenderloin for you today. And there's no way that's going to be halal for you, right? Then in that situation, you turn it down. But in the general case scenario, it's better just to accept it and you, you, there's no burden of responsibility upon you at that time. Wallahu ta'ala. Ta Khair will conclude with that. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdik ashadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk. Next week, same time, Wednesday night at 8.30. But we're going back to our regular schedule now. We're going back to hadith number 14. So next week will be hadith number 14, insha'Allah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.